our study on the Holy Spirit, we have, I, I hope, learned, I, I don't know that I've actually said it, but we have learned that there is an element of progressive revelation that we experience uh, in the Scripture. It begins with the Holy Spirit acting as an agent of creation. He's granting, by breathing life into the nostrils of man, he's granting life, providing energy, and providing every life with dignity and potential. But then, when mankind decided to exercise their free will and sin, everything changed. Adam and Eve broke the only rule in the garden, and in the process, they broke fellowship with God. And their decision had consequences, not only for them, but for the rest of us. Rather than contributing to the order, beauty, and peace of the garden, they created chaos because their sin, their sin created the experience of death. God decided because of extensive rebellion that he would have to withdraw his spirit from man and in the withdrawal of his spirit, we die. But here's the good news. God wasn't going to give up on the people he created to love. He had a vision from the very beginning, and our foolishness, our poor decision-making wasn't going to change that. He would continue to pursue a relationship with mankind, and so he immediately began the merciful, gracious process of wooing us with his love. The plan was to create a people, a people of his own, who would show the rest of the world the order, beauty, peace, and joy that can only be found in relationship with God. So what did he do? He found, a, interestingly, he found a moon worshiper. His name was Abram. He called him to follow him, he established a covenant with who ultimately became Abraham, and he decided to make him the father of a God-glorifying faith nation. And that nation became the nation of Israel. Now, it was a covenant, so there was an agreement between God and Abraham. The agreement was that in exchange for their fidelity in worship and their commitment to God's cause or God's mission, God would bless them. And these blessings from God would make them a light so they could present the indefensible argument to the world that God was worthy of their faith and trust. Now, as we know, the relationship with God from the very beginning was stormy, not on God's end, right? God was always faithful to his word. The problem is they weren't. Unsure of what they wanted, the people pinballed between obedience and rebellion. But all the while, God remained faithful. They got in a little trouble in Egypt. They became slaves. God freed them from slavery. Then he settled them in the promised land where every need was met. It was the land flowing with milk and honey. But as we learned last week, they were tested in their prosperity. And they failed the test. A generation emerged 
that had no interest in God. They didn't know their story. They didn't know their God. And so instead of influencing the pagan people around them, God's children were being influenced by pagans who flipped the script. They exerted influence on God's chosen people, and God's people fell further and further away and deeper and deeper into the chaotic consequences of their sin. Now, this created all sorts of problems for them, and when they came to their senses, they realized that they were God's people, and they had access to God, and they should turn and pray and ask God for deliverance one more time. And so what did God do? He responded by deploying his Holy Spirit on a rescue mission. Okay, he, he raised up leaders who we learned were called judges. They would use their divine power to rescue the people from their oppressors. So the Holy Spirit came powerfully on the judge and then the victory was secured. In short order, they would return to prosperity and then sadly back to their wicked ways. It was a vicious cycle of failure. The last line in the book of Judges sums up the problem and, by the way, hints at God's solution. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, they had no king. Initially, that was God's plan for them. God's vision for the nation of Israel is not that they would be a monarchy, but they would be a theocracy, okay? That means God's people would be committed to God as king. He would literally be their king. But what they found out along the way is that they didn't have the discipline or the willpower to stay the course with God as king. And so later, some of the elders realized they were in trouble if something didn't change. So the people came to the prophet and priest, Samuel, and asked him to give them a king. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Okay, and by the way, we're going to be looking primarily in 1 Samuel chapter 6, 13. So you can turn over in your Bibles there in a few minutes. But look what they came to Samuel and said. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It, it, it's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, surprisingly, you would think that God would say they're, they're disobedient, they don't know what they're doing, so just ignore what they're saying and let's stay the course. But that's not what he says. He says, listen to them. But warn them there will be consequences. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now, Samuel, who was charged with leading the nation of Israel to uh, spiritual fidelity to God, he took their 
demands for a king very personally. But God pointed out the facts. It wasn't Samuel they were rejecting. They were actually rejecting God as king. They, They wouldn't follow God in faith, and they needed a leader that they could follow in the flesh. Some of their freedoms would certainly be forfeited because a king is going to have rules and taxes, and he's going to limit their freedoms. But because of the hardness of their heart, God acquiesced to their demands and told Samuel to anoint them a king. Now, there's a difference between a king and a judge. And this is really important to understand because it it marks the change that we see as the next phase of the Holy Spirit's ministry is revealed. So what's the difference? The primary difference is that the judges were appointed and empowered by the Spirit for a time of crisis and only for that time of crisis. When the Spirit came powerfully, as the Scripture says, onto a judge, it was for the purpose, the sole purpose of defeating their enemies and saving the people from annihilation. For God to have a group of people that represented them, he needed that group of people to be alive. So the judges were empowered to make that happen. But... They weren't called to be spiritual leaders. And actually, it's a good thing because most of them were a mess. Like, do you remember Gideon? He was a coward. He was afraid of the enemy. And later on, he created an idol. And the Bible says that all of Israel prostituted themselves to the idol that Gideon created. He was a mess. Jephthah, in hopes of securing a victory that had already been won because the Holy Spirit was upon him, made an unnecessary vow that led to the literal sacrifice of his only daughter. When he came home from war, his precious daughter walked out the door of their tent and it sealed her fate because Jephthah made a foolish vow to God. And then you know about Samson. He was a narcissistic womanizer whose commitment to God was virtually non-existent. Yet, God's Spirit came on him in power and he was able to lead them to freedom from the Philistines. So think about what we're learning here. Despite their moral corruption, God's Spirit came on the judges because God needed leaders who would deliver his people. So to our surprise, the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the judges was in no way tied to their personal integrity or their spiritual fidelity to God. He came upon them to enable them to get the job done. And when the job was done, he was gone. But when God decided to appoint a king over Israel, things were different. God was actually looking for someone to govern his people, to establish boundaries and guidelines that would enable them to flourish for their mission. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, after Samuel is crushed by their request for a king, God tells him to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. 
And so when the time came, he took a flask of oil, he poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and declared that the Lord had anointed him as ruler over his inheritance. Ruler, not judge. Ruler, leader, king. No longer would the people run amok because they had no king. Now they had a king who was to keep them in line, keep them on mission so they could be the display people that God had called them to be. The king was empowered by the Spirit to shepherd Israel to live on God's mission with an unwavering commitment to God, his word, and his wisdom. The Spirit's work with King Saul was radically different from his work with the judges. The judges just needed the power of God to deliver the people from their enemies. The king would need that power too, and he would get it in spades. But more importantly, he would need the Spirit to enable him to inspire the people to faith in and fidelity to the ways and wisdom of God. He was called to shepherd the people's hearts. To inspire them to love God and love God's word and his law and to live with integrity. He needed them to trust God if they were going to accomplish and fulfill their mission. And so the difference in the Spirit's ministry between the kings and the judges is readily apparent. After Saul was anointed, Samuel gave him his marching orders. He's like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And they included an experience that would set the tone to help them understand and us understand God's intent with this particular deployment of his Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. Samuel, talking to Saul, said, After that, you will go to Gibeah of God. Now, notice this. Please notice what he says. This is really important. Where there is a Philistine outpost. In other words, there is a garrison of the enemy at this place Saul is going to. Now, I want you to think what a judge would have done. And look what God tells Saul to do. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with leers, timbrels. I asked Matt how to say that. How are we saying leers? Leers? Okay, leers. We got it right. You all feel good about that? I, I've been saying liars, but I felt bad about that. Leers, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them and they were, will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled and you are a different person. Do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you, and the implication is he is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, understand what's happening. When the Spirit came powerfully on Saul, it wasn't just to be able to defeat the enemies. 
As a matter of fact, while the Philistines, they were there to be defeated. And the people would have expected if God was empowering Saul for him to march up there to that garrison of the Philistines, the Philistine outpost, and mop the floor with them. But that's not what he was to do. As a matter of fact, he was to bypass it. We would think that that's the only thing he could do to, be, to bring credibility to his ministry, for the people to believe in him and say, yes, he is our king. Look what he did to those Philistines. But that wasn't the plan, because that's not the message that God was sending to his people. You think you're getting a king who's going to lead you to victory and material prosperity, but I'm sending you a king for a very different reason. Saul was told to bypass that Philistine outpost altogether and look for a procession of prophets who were following the praise team down the hill. There would be prophesying, which, by the way, we're not exactly sure what that means, but we believe it means offering praise to God and declaring the truth of God. So they were prophesying, and Saul was to join them. Okay, not like get in line with the rest of the hanger-owners and join them, but he was to join them because he would be prophesying as they were. He, Saul... A nobody would be prophesying. And it was such a radical change for Saul that the people who knew him could not believe it. Look what verse 11 says of chapter 10. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what, what, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? Now, what is God doing with Saul? He's establishing his leadership. And he's highlighting the most important leadership he could bring to God's people. And that was spiritual leadership. Was, is Saul a prophet? Is Saul a spiritual leader? The answer is yes. When the Spirit of God came on Saul, he became a spiritual leader. And by the way, he became accountable as a spiritual leader. From that time forward, the plan was that the Spirit of God would stay with Saul. And Samuel said, hey, look, you can do whatever you find to do. It will be met with success in this vein because God is with you. And how was God with him? God was with him in spirit. So Saul would not only be a warrior, he would be a spiritual leader in the power of the spirit. He would lead the nation to walk in the wisdom of God's way as long as he did. as long as he did. See, this is where we learn about the change in the Spirit's mission. Remember, the judges acted like nuts and God's Spirit still empowered them. But because Saul was called to a deeper, more impactful level of leadership, a spiritual leader more was required. 
he didn't just empower Saul as he had empowered the judges. The task of whipping the Philistines, which was still important, wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was shepherding the hearts of the people that God placed in his sphere of influence. So as it turns out, God would be with Saul as long as Saul was with God. As long as Saul walked with humility. As long as he was committed. As long as he was dependent upon the Spirit of God to guide him in the narrow path that God called him to walk. But an interesting thing happens. Saul, he got a little too big for his royal britches. And instead of exercising faith and trusting God's plan, Saul began to take matters into his own hands. Saul lived not in dependence upon God, but in expedience. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 13, which is where I want you to turn in your Bibles, uh, there's a huge showdown between Israel and the Philistines. And on paper, like any commentator, anybody sitting up on the hill watching what was about to unfold, they knew it was going to be ugly. By any measure, Israel was facing a far superior foe. But knowing God said he would, knowing God said he could lead the people, Saul was still spoiling for a fight. And the scripture describes the overwhelming scene beginning in verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel. Here's what they brought to the party. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now the few hundred people that Saul showed up with things weren't looking good. Saul had confidence and faith because of his experience with Samuel, but he had not passed this on to his men as he was called to do. He had not led them to the place where they could exercise the same kind of faith he was exercising. And his men were struggling. Look at verse 6. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. They hid anywhere they could hide. And it was so bad that some Hebrews even ran and crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Now the armies under Saul did what any group of lily-livered cowards would do. When they saw that the deck was stacked against them, they ran and hid. 
Except actually, not all of them ran and hid because some of them couldn't. They were frozen in fear, quaking in their boots. Now, Saul had failed to infuse them with faith, to understand what God was about to do for them. And so he's in a terrible situation. It's a real test of his call. But Saul had an ace up his sleeve. Okay, Samuel was supposed to join them in camp and offer a sacrifice to God that would secure God's presence with his army and the victory. Now, Samuel was scheduled to arrive in seven days' time. But, look at verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he panicked. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Now, I just want to pause right there and point out something that is true in our spiritual journey. Oftentimes, well, I guess we don't really know, but I believe it to be true. Many times, we give up before the breakthrough. There is a reason that Scripture, from beginning to end, exhorts the people of faith to persevere, to push through, to choose faith. You know what Saul wasn't doing? He wasn't choosing faith. He knew what was right for him to do. He knew what he should not be doing. And he knew the only hope they had of victory was for God to be involved. So, What did he do? Instead of just waiting, right after he made the offering, guess who showed up? Samuel. He didn't wait. Verse 9, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, I I saw that the men were scattering, they're the problem, and that you didn't come at the set time, so you're the problem, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, so they're part of the problem. And I thought, trying to solve the problem, because I'm not the problem, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled, I felt like your decision forced me to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not 
kept the Lord's command. You know what this was? This was the perfect opportunity for Saul to do exactly what he was called and equipped to do by the Holy Spirit. He could lead the people to faith. But seven days came and went, and Samuel was nowhere to be found. And he knew if the sacrifices were not offered, they were sure to be destroyed. But he wasn't going to wait on God's timing or do things God's way because he was in a panic. He couldn't control his men. You know what's interesting? He had faith that God would take care of the Philistines, but he didn't have faith that God would take care of God's people. Now, the rule that he broke was that the priest was supposed to be the point of connection with God. Despite the fact that Saul was full of the Holy Spirit, he was not authorized to offer the sacrifices. The deal was that he would enjoy the presence and power of the Spirit of God as long as he followed the laws and the wisdom of God. He was just supposed to wait. And it was in waiting that he would accomplish the most important task. He would be training the people up to live for God by faith. But he didn't do it. He panicked. He thought he couldn't wait any longer. And as he put it, Samuel's tardiness compelled him to take matters into his own hands. Like every terrible leader, Saul found somebody else to blame. It was Samuel's fault. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. So Saul had no choice but to take a shortcut. Because wasn't he responsible for these people? No, Saul was responsible for shepherding their hearts toward faith in God who was ultimately responsible for his people. They may have had a monarchy at this time, but the monarch was supposed to be following God. And the way we follow God, the way we demonstrate faith is by living according to his law by doing things his way and submitting to his wisdom. We follow God by living humbly before God, utterly dependent upon him. Now here's what I want you to understand. The Spirit had equipped Saul to do just that. But he panicked. He thought there was a better way, a shortcut. He he chose expedience. And he offered the sacrifice himself. I'll do it. I mean, I've got the Holy Spirit. God said, just do whatever you find to do. Put your hand to it and it'll be a success. Oh, unless you have to break my law to do it. And you know what he proved in that moment? He proved that he could not be trusted with the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. 
he could not be trusted with spiritual leadership in his sphere of influence. Because he didn't trust God. The role that he was called and empowered to was greater than military success. The Spirit didn't just intend to guide him to victory and bring material prosperity to Israel, but to usher them into a new age of spiritual prosperity. But by breaking the laws of God, he forfeited his kingdom. And he forfeited the presence of the Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, And the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul. If there's a sadder statement in Scripture, I'm not sure where it is. Chosen by God, empowered by God, given the opportunity to change the world. Saul decided to do it his way. And the Spirit left him. Samuel told him, look, the, the Spirit of God is looking for someone whose heart is fully committed to Him. Sadly, that wasn't Saul. Making the expedient choice to work around God's inconvenient law when those times were tough, it opened the door for the people to do the same thing you understand that? It lifted the lid because he wasn't acting like God's king and leading like God's king. The people were free to run around, to do things their way, to live by the shortcut. And God said, that's not the vision I have for the monarchy. And he took his spirit from Saul. Now, what's, what's the point for us? I mean, we're not called to be kings of Israel, obviously. But I want you to understand that the Spirit of God still comes upon the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says very clearly that you have the Spirit of God. The Bible also tells us that God is still in the business of looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to Him so, they, so He can empower them to do His work. Like, what is the work I'm supposed to do? It's your sphere of influence. It's your family. It's the people you work with people you live beside. It's everybody who knows that you're a follower of Jesus and looks to you to learn the way. Now the question that I think we each need to wrestle with 
Am I doing it God's way? Am I living a life that inspires faith? That glorifies God? Has the potential of expanding his kingdom? follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God isn't going to leave you to the point that you aren't connected with God for eternity. But as it relates to the mission that God has called each of us to, Scripture says clearly, don't grieve the Spirit. Live in such a way that honors the Spirit and advances God's kingdom call. So, and pray with me. God, we're so thankful that your plan to use the faith nation that Abraham began has not changed. Began with the nation of Israel and with the advent, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it expanded to all those who place their faith in Jesus. We know our responsibility, Lord. I pray that we would do our part in the power of the Spirit to facilitate faith in our sphere of influence. Lord, I pray right now for fathers in this room that they would accept the responsibility that they have to lead their children. I pray for moms they would let your light shine through them as they love on your children, the children you have entrusted to us. Father, I, I pray for everyone in this room that has been entrusted with the high and holy calling of leadership, and I do believe that's all of us. pray that we would lead in your power and for your glory. You know, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the, the truth is that Jesus finished the job of changing the hearts. It's the job that Saul didn't finish that David, who we'll look at next week, couldn't finish. It's one that only Jesus could finish. He came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins, was raised from the dead so that we could know life abundant and life eternal with God after we're gone. 
Jesus provided the way. And it's faith in Jesus that facilitates the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and you want to know God's peace and his purpose, it's Jesus that provides the way. Father, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes, open the eyes of those who have not yet come to faith in Jesus. Draw them to know your love and grace and mercy. For those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we'll live in integrity as we pursue the mission you have entrusted to us. In Christ's name I pray.